everybody! Welcome back to How to Stand. We conclude the mini-series all about the satanic panic today with my interview with Rick Emerson, author of Unmask Alice, LSD, Satanic Panic, and the Imposter Behind the World's Most Notorious Diaries. You don't have to go to part one and two first to understand where our conversation goes, although that context can only help. So all three parts of the mini-series are out now, and trigger warning before we dive into it, this conversation does deal with heavy subjects, including suicide, depression, mental health crises, as well as drug use. This is a not-suitable-for-children episode, so keep that in mind and enjoy the interview. My first question is, would you mind sharing a bit of the background story about how this idea even came about to write Unmasked Alice in the first place, how you first got started on it? Yeah, I I lived through a couple of social panics growing up. First, the war on drugs, and it was not really even just the war on drugs. It was the just say no part of the war on drugs, which growing up, I was constantly told that strangers were going to be slipping LSD into my food or into my drinks or into my Halloween candy. And, you know, and there was a lot of other things wrapped around that, the idea that taking those drugs would then turn us crazy or make us jump off buildings. And so that was a big part of the culture. And then that slowly was augmented by this thing that we now call the satanic panic. And that was this kind of 15 year literal witch hunt that spread across the United States and, and just ruined lives left and right. And, you know, that also encompassed a lot of other things in the culture. The satanic panic branched out to where it absorbed things like heavy metal and horror movies and Dungeons and Dragons. So having lived through these, really just a strange and fascinating and an unsettling time, you know, not just for me, but for the culture. And then decades later, I discovered that you know, both of these social panics, the war on drugs and the satanic panic, were not necessarily started by, but certainly fueled by, fed by these pair of posthumous teenage diaries, Go Ask Alice and Jay's Journal. And that is something that I did not know growing up. And when I learned not only that both of these social panics were fueled by these teenage diaries, but that both of these diaries came from... From the same strange place, which was this giant house with blood red walls on the outskirts of Provo, Utah, you know, the, the deeper I got into it, it sounds a little glib, but it's I realized no one had really told the story. And if I wanted to if I wanted to read this book, I kind of had to write it because it didn't already exist. How did you first go about actually gathering information for the book? Because it was probably extra hard considering the fact that it's a story about a pathological liar who lied all her life. And when it's a story about someone who is so unverified, like how do you, how do you even start? That is uh, the layers of the layers of weirdness and fascination and difficulty in the story. Is it's one of those things that you look back on in, in retrospect. And it, while I'm glad that I wrote the book and I would absolutely do it again, I really, really am happy that the book now exists and is done. I am glad that I did not know going into it exactly just how big and, as you said, just how kind of layered and complex this story would be. And I started, I think, probably like everybody does, just sort of scouring the internet for everything that was out there. Again, initially, I sort of assumed that somebody had already written, because Go Ask Alice in particular is just such a, is such a big part of the culture. Go Ask Alice, even people who have never read Go Ask Alice, sometimes people who even have not heard of Go Ask Alice have been impacted by it or it's touched their life in some way because it's such a part of particularly American culture. So I sort of assumed this book had already written, had, had been written. So I went online and started looking around, and there just wasn't a lot out there. And what I found was that, so when I started this in 2015, it was a four-page article from 1979 that in most ways was still 
the most in-depth thing written about this story. There just wasn't a lot. And everything else that was on the internet, especially, was just sort of, for the most part, was kind of a recycling of those same few things that had been reported back in the 70s. Having exhausted the most obvious sources on the internet, then I kind of had to go analog. We started sending letters that came back unopened or undeliverable or calling old phone numbers, most of which were disconnected, but some of which actually went through. And, and then literally just going and literally just going and showing up on people's front doorsteps and, and knocking on the door and just introducing myself and kind of working from the outside in. And once I was able to do that, things kind of came into focus. You know, once you uncover a piece of it, it's a little bit like a jigsaw puzzle, I guess, in that it, each piece kind of leads you to something next to it. And, you know, it is a story that kind of spreads literally from Hollywood to the White House to the FBI labs at Quantico to all of that. As you said, though, Beatrice Sparks, who is, you know, in most ways the through line of this story, I sometimes say that she's not just an unreliable narrator of other people's lives. She's an unreliable narrator of her own life. And so it did require, you know, double checking things and trying to figure out is somebody quoting something that they heard from somebody else? And do all of these sources point back to one original source, which itself may not be reliable? It was it really became it was like navigating in a house of a house of mirrors a lot of the time. Yeah, it sounds like it. I have kind of a two-part question. One part is, given that the focus is about Beatrice Sparks and her many pieces of writing, were you always planning to make the book structured the way it is, where part one is about Goes Gallus, part two is about the truth of Jay's journal, and part three is more about what happened after both were out in her other books? Was that always going to be the focus? And then part two of that question is just, is there a certain reason you named it Unmasked Gallus as opposed to uh, debunking Jay's journal or something that tied in a different title? I think the structure of the book, in a weird way, it's almost hard to answer this accurately simply because I could not even begin to tell you how many drafts of this book I did, not even just in total, but I mean, the number of drafts I did before I felt like I had any sort of a handle on the story is, I mean, I actually have never gone back to look to see how many words total I typed for various drafts and iterations of this book, I mean, because I, it would probably be it would probably be unnerving to go back and realize how many times I essentially typed the entire manuscript to trying to get a handle on this because it ended up being, I think, I think the book ends up being pretty straightforward and readable and accessible where you always kind of know where you are in the timeline. But it took a long time to get to that point because the timeline does jump back and forth and there are so many moving parts and there are so many people that come in and out of the story. I think that structure just revealed itself sort of like a sculpture where you just pare it down and pare it down and pare it down. And then finally, you grew equal parts, effort and luck kind of stumble on the right way to tell the story. So that's a long way of saying that I, I think I just tried a lot of approaches that didn't work. And then I finally kind of hit on the structure you're describing. And that seemed to that seemed to lend itself really well to the story. In terms of the title... I've taken it down now, but at one point I had, so Unmask Alice was, that came to me almost at once. It might have actually been on the very first day or the very first week. It just sort of popped into my head. And then I spent a lot of time sort of turning it over and trying to look for a title that I thought was somehow better. And nothing else kind of had the same punch and the same works on several levels. Um, I had a long list of titles on my office wall. And at one point there was, I think, literally 50 or 60 other titles I'd written down. Most of them were just dreadful. Here's an example of a dreadful title I did not use. I think at one point I was, I literally had written down the phrase faux ask Alice, which I thought was clever, really not clever. And it's kind of cringe inducing to say out loud. But at one point I, there was about 10 seconds where I was like, that's a brilliant title. But I think Unmask Alice just had, it had a real ring to it. And then all the, you know, just all of the very prosaic kind of marketing things you have to be thinking about. 
you write a book, you have a story that you think is good, you want people to read it, and you want people to, if they like it, to maybe tell other people about it. And so then you have to start thinking about, well, is this easy to remember? Is it easy to say? Is it easy to pronounce? You know, sometimes I'll see a book that has a really interesting title, but it's sort of a verbal pun. And then you wonder if somebody just hears the name of that book out loud, are they going to realize that it's not spelled the same way that it sounds and all of that? So the fact that Go Ask Alice, that phrase, is so well known in the culture. And it's one of those things that I almost don't need any, I almost don't deserve any credit for it because it just happened, it just happened to occur to me. And it, it's just so good in so many ways. It has the same rhythm, the same number of syllables. And there's a lot of, as you said, there's a, so many elements of this story that are fascinating. But for people to read any of those other elements, for people to learn the whole story, you got to get them in the door. And you've got to get their attention long enough to say, hey, have I got a story for you? And I think Unmask Alice, just it works really well as an intriguing title that brings people in the door so they can hear all the rest of this giant, fascinating saga. Yeah, and there is a lot more to it. And what I appreciate about it is that it talks about some pretty serious, intense issues, but in ways that are not all or nothing. So I guess, for example, like, you know, you're right about like the panic around LSD. And you write about, like, the legitimate concerns people had. It wasn't all this manufactured feeling of panic. Like, people were concerned about teen mental health and runaways and things like that. But you also write about it in a nuanced way about, well, they were kind of also kind of scapegoating here. Same with other topics in the book, too, where you kind of write about, well, here's kind of where the real concern is versus the, the mass hysteria, I guess. So was that kind of just a conscious decision or just did that happen? Your approach to writing it where you applied all of these tangential topics from the time period into the story. There's a novelist named Richard Price who has written movies. He was a writer on the TV show The Wire. He's just a great author. He writes these really propulsive and accessible, but also very nuanced and intricate police procedurals and crime novels. And he has this analogy that he uses where he talks about I think he uses the analogy of a train where he says, you know, if you get on a train in Miami and you take that train all the way to Seattle, along the way, you're going to see all of these amazing things. You're going to say like, well, over there is a stand of trees and over there is a canyon and there are the Timpanogos Mountains and you know, here's the Grand Canyon and whatever. As the train makes its way from Miami to Seattle, you're going to see all of these amazing things. And it's all because you're on this one journey, on this one track, on this one train. And the story ended up being a little bit like that in that, you know, starting with Go Ask Alice and Beatrice Sparks and the other books that she produced, if you just follow that story, and I certainly couldn't have known all of this at the outset, at the, at the beginning, that's another reason why this book took so long is that it's the story just, now I'm mixing my metaphors officially, but it's the idea of, I'm going to quote somebody else here, but it is Stephen King talks about stories being almost like a fossil where it's like you're digging or you're walking along or whatever, and you see this, something sticking out of the ground. And you have no idea what it could be. It could just be, be the skeleton of a woodchuck. could be the skeleton of a T-Rex. You just don't know. And you start digging and you start excavating. And sometimes the fossil is incomplete. Sometimes it's small. Sometimes it's gigantic. Sometimes you have no idea what it is. And following the story all the way through, at the beginning, if you had told me at the outset, all of the different parts of society and all of the different social developments and upheavals and advances and panics that are touched by this. I mean, there was just no way I could have predicted that. And starting with Go Ask Alice, that book came out in 1971, and that is when the war on drugs is officially launched. But of course, the war on drugs came from Richard Nixon, and Richard Nixon comes with all of his own baggage. And the war on drugs and, and Nixon's approach to the war on drugs specifically, that was kind of pegged to LSD. LSD was used as public enemy number one in terms of the drug problem at that point. And at that point, then you have to say, well, what's the history of LSD? 
And if you look at the history of LSD, that leads you down. Every door leads to 10 more doors, and you can't go through all of them because that gives you a 40,000-page book that nobody's going to read. But there is a way to bring this full circle. It's a little bit like when you're taking that train that train trip or when you're on a plane and the pilot says, you know, uh, passengers on the left side, if you're looking down, you'll be able to see the Grand Coulee Dam as we fly over, and to your right, Mount St. Helens or whatever. That's kind of what I was trying to do with this book, is to stay on this main journey while also saying, by the way, did you know this? And knowing what to keep in and what to leave is, that's its own kind of art that I'm, that I'm only mildly competent at. There's a lot there, definitely. Well, that's what I really liked about the book, is it was, it was like so many different doors. Yeah, I guess I'm going to bring in a weird metaphor, too. Like if you're walking down a hall and every door you could open up and go down a different path. And it does touch on just all of these layers that were a part of the story. As I was reading about all these times where it seems, in hindsight, so, so obvious that this woman was passing off and fiction as nonfiction, where, you know, she overtly copy-pasted sentences across books. She had really fact-checkable lies she told. She changed her story a lot. All these moments I'm reading about where it's like, how did she get away with this? But then I started thinking more about it and thought, well, with all those factors that you addressed that were in that moment, it almost feels like it was inevitable. People would just be primed to believe anything she said because they were in that state of the perfect storm hit. And then suddenly her credibility wasn't questioned because she had this narrative that was useful and made sense to people at the time. Have you been thinking, oh, my gosh, how'd she get away with this? Or upon further thinking about it, is it actually less less of that kind of case and more like, oh, now I get why she wasn't caught. To some degree, I can only look at it from my own perspective. And I have the advantage of, I have this sort of God's eye view of being in originally in 2015, but now in 2022 and having access to this broad swath of information via, you know, via the internet and also just via time and crude knowledge and reporting and researching that has happened in all these topics. At the time, you know, I think the media consolidation was both the best chance to have caught some of these inconsistencies and deceptions early on and also an explanation for why we didn't. And what I mean by that is, you know, everything is a trade-off. And there was certainly a lot of downside to the fact that media was so consolidated in the early 1970s. I mean, you basically had three television networks, four if you counted PBS. There was whatever your local newspaper was, but even that was a lot of reprinted stories from the Associated Press. And there were a couple of weekly news magazines. And, you know, and, and that was about it. There were only a few sort of canonized channels for news to come out. So the good news about that is that if the gatekeepers of those very few outlets for news sense that something isn't quite right or they push back on something or they discover that something is a lie, the odds are pretty good that they can stop it from being disseminated so widely because, again, everything everything sort of comes from that handful of channels. Of course, the downside is exactly the same, which is that if it goes undetected or if nobody notices or cares that a story doesn't quite sound right, then it's going to get into the bloodstream pretty quickly. I forget who said this, but somebody once said, you know, never attribute to malice what can be ascribed to simple laziness. And I don't necessarily know that it was laziness, but I do think, as you said, this sort of perfect storm of Go Ask Alice came out in 1971. And, and so for the broad strokes of that book are that this teenage girl who's sort of lured into drug use and runs away from home and goes through all of these trials and tribulations and eventually dies at 17 and leaves behind this diary. And as tragic as that was, it was also a story that, as you noted, people were kind of primed to believe. People were ready to believe that because it 
it explained or confirmed a lot of what they already what they already wondered or what they already suspected. When you couple that with the fact that it was literally labeled a real diary, in a strange way, the fact that Goask Alice was so widely believed to be genuine, and really still is in a lot of quarters, it's almost strangely optimistic in the sense that however cynical humans might sometimes be, there is this part of us that wants to believe something when we're told it's real. When somebody says, hey, here's what really happened, there is this real part of us, this idealistic part of us that wants to take that at face value, and we want to assume that the person telling us that is telling us the truth. I think that can be hard to overcome, and of course that all takes on its own momentum over time, and sometimes it curdles, and that, that has a lot of really ugly side effects and fallout, but I feel like I'm getting way too philosophical here, but that is strange duality of human nature, is that we can be reflexively cynical, and we sometimes are drawn to the worst possible interpretations of things. At the same time, cooperation seems to somewhat be built into human nature, so that's why there's this equally strong part of us that wants to believe that we're being told the truth. Yeah, that makes sense. And an interesting wrinkle in this, too, is that this story, a lot of it takes place in Mormon communities or near Mormon communities. And there's this one specific part of the book. I'm going to paraphrase the quote, but I just found it really summative. When Marcella, the mom of Alden, who, long story short, for those who don't know, the kid behind Jay's journal, basically, but now she's grieving her son's suicide. This woman who went to Beatrice Sparks to publish that, Beatrice talked to her in the words that bind a world. Or the phrase is something like that. And it just really, to me, kind of encapsulated how she was able to exploit that human tendency to believe what we're hearing. And I just think that's an interesting um, intersection with Mormon culture and how they are, um, or just any religion, that people like Marcella are more prone to believe someone like Beatrice who comes into their life is that fateful intervention or something like that. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, there's the basic backstory there is that Goask Alice had come out in 1971, and it is the supposed posthumous diary of this teenage addict. And when it came out in 1971, it was really a sensation and continues to be in some ways. But especially in that first decade, it was really just a phenomenon. And it created the modern young adult genre, and it solidified a lot of ideas that people had about drugs and about, you know, young people and drugs and the war on drugs and the fallout from drugs and all of that. And was, you know, widely accepted to be an authentic diary because it was attributed to anonymous there was really no way to sort of kind of pick it apart. And you fast forward eight years, there's a woman named Marcella Barrett. Her son, Alden, had died. He'd committed suicide in 1971, actually before Go Ask Alice even came out. He had struggled with addiction and uh, depression and had gotten clean and sober, but, you know, depression continued to kind of play havoc with his life and his emotions. And he he ultimately took his own life in 1971, and he left behind a diary. And a few years later, his mother, Marcella Barrett, who had held on to his diary thinking, maybe if I somehow get this published, it can help other troubled teenagers or it can help their families so that no other family goes through the same thing I went through. Then in 1977, she reads this newspaper article that identifies Beatrice Sparks as the, quote, editor of Go Ask Alice. And she reads this sort of official story, as it was always told, which is that this girl, Alice, had gotten into drugs and died and left behind her diaries and Beatrice Sparks edited them into a book. And so Marcella Barrett, as you said, she's reading this this article, and she thinks to herself, well, this is the reason. 
This is the reason why, after this horrible thing happened that my son took his own life, he left behind a diary. This is the greater good, maybe, that can come from his death. This is maybe the silver lining or the, or the thing that will provide some sort of reason or explanation for why my family went through this whole trauma. And she contacts Beatrice Sparks and says, my son Alden committed suicide. He left behind this diary. Could you maybe edit it into a book like you did for Alice and Alice's diaries? She's desperately looking for to make sense of her son's suicide. And, you know, as she reads this article, all of these variables sort of horribly ticking into place that, you know, she reads this article and it's, it's that Beatrice Sparks, she's a fellow Latter-day Saint. She lives just nine miles away. Beatrice Sparks is a fellow Latter-day Saint. She lives down the road. She's a mother of four. She certainly presents herself as a psychologist. And so Marcella Barrett says, this is the reason. This was fated to be. That's its own kind of confirmation bias. And, and you don't have to look too far to find other examples of this, you know, in even our very recent history. There are certain people who just can read a room. They know what their audience, whether that audience is one person or whether that audience is a whole room full of people, they know what to say to connect with that audience at that time. They know what that person or what those people want to hear. Most religions have a sort of insular culture, but Latter-day Saint culture is especially insular. And certainly in a place like Pleasant Grove, Utah, which is then I think was 98 percent you know, Mormon, and even now I think it's more than 90 percent. Every culture like that, every community, you know, it has its own, whether you're talking about a religion or whether you're talking about some particularly invested slice of television fandom, you know, it comes with its own language, its own lexicon, its own sort of inside references and its own behaviors. I think humans, all of us, and I'm including myself in this, I think we're, I think we're more inclined to, to trust and to, to put our faith in people who speak the same language figuratively. And that's certainly the case with religion. And I think it furthered the dynamic of people accepting what they heard, in this case from Beatrice Sparks, because she was, for lack of a better word, she was one of them. There's this one particular story I'd love for you to talk about that's in the book that just, to me, it just kind of just blew my mind. It was so very, very darkly funny, like so ridiculous. The story about Beatrice, who actually, she got pretty favorable news coverage, but the one time she didn't, she held such a grudge against the reporter that she banned her from her funeral preemptively. Yeah, it's one of those things that one of the sort of taglines for this book is truth is stranger than nonfiction. And I use that because it's, this is kind of the classic. If you read this whole saga from Unmask Alice, if you read it as a novel, you would just say, well, like, there's no this this doesn't there's no way this could have all happened because so many of the events and people in the story are just almost comically. They're either comically sort of villainous or just things happen that seem like the most unbelievable coincidences ever. And yet it all really happened. And one of them, as you noted, is that at one point uh, and this happens about halfway through the book, Beatrice Sparks has a sits down for an interview with a woman who had read Go Ask Alice and was sort of fascinated by it. And it was one of the very few interviews that was not with kind of a mainstream publication. It wasn't with a newspaper. It wasn't with a radio station. It was just hadn't been hadn't been booked through an agent or through a publicist. It was a woman just called her out of the blue and said, hey, would you like to sit down and be interviewed for this uh, publication called School Library Journal? And because it didn't go through all, all the proper channels, it ended up being a little bit more of a you know, that interview ended up painting Beatrice Sparks in a pretty bad light. She spoke off the cuff and tried to bluff her way through a lot of things that, you know, were not really bluffable. And, and the woman who wrote that article wasn't unfair. She was actually very, very fair. She was straight down the middle about her reporting, which was probably the problem. 
when that article came out, Beatrice Parks, she didn't come off looking very good. She came off looking like a person who was trying to fake her way through a lot of things that she didn't. She raised suspicions. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, the, the, the red flags in that story were, you know, were numerous. And you could really start to see some of the seams in her backstory. So she was not happy about that and wrote a very, very strong, like sort of blisteringly strident letter to, to the editor about it afterward. And as you said, decades later, had held on to this grudge about the article for so long that she left these posthumous instructions that even decades later, this woman's author was to be banned from her funeral, which is the sort of thing that is... It's so, just so sort of absurdly petty. You know, you just think to yourself, like, this couldn't possibly be real. And one of the things that I just was confronted with over and over and over again in the story is that things that seem unbelievable in fiction actually are really believable in nonfiction, because that's kind of how life is. The things that you would roll your eyes at if you saw them in a movie, when they happen in real life, you just think, well, of course course that happened because why not because that's just because we all know that life is just sort of filled with a lot of craziness and a lot of improbable things and that's i feel like that happens like every three or four pages in the story there's just something that happens where you think like how in the name of like this just seems utterly unbelievable and yet it was true can you talk a bit about her last book because i think that brings home that point it was finding katie i believe it was called it really just to me is just like the most incredible hard to believe but true like finale like Beatrice Sparks ends her writing career and becomes the person she always wanted to be through the characters she just really became more brazen and, and like uncareful about any red flags she might put in her books anything that didn't make sense it felt like at the end of her writing career she threw all caution to the wind and was like I'm going out with a bang <laughs> Yeah, and I, I'll also say at the outset here that it's sometimes like when you go to see a movie and somebody will say, like, look, whatever you do, just try to go in knowing nothing about it. Don't Google anything about it. You're better off if you just walk in and just see the movie without knowing any of the backstory. That's not necessarily the case here, especially because something like Go Ask Alice is such a part of the culture. And also, I should say, just as a caveat, that I am certainly not the first person. It's not like I discovered the story. I mean, it's far from the first person to have read Go Ask Alice or to have thought about it later and thought, hang on, this doesn't quite wash. One of those things that people have wondered about forever, which is one of the reasons why I was surprised there had been no kind of deep dive into it. So a lot of this had already been kind of floating around. Without giving too much away, I will say to your point that one of the amazing things about this story was that Go Ask Alice came out in 71. She produced a follow-up called Voices that came out in 78, and then that was followed by Jay's Journal, and then another, I think, six, quote, teenage diaries through 2005. And there was like a real escalation, this sense that which I think we see with a lot of people who are imposters or people who engage in fraud, where it starts with something small. And every time you get away with it, it kind of gets bigger and bigger the next time, to the point that by 2005, when her final book, Finding Katie, came out, it almost just reads as a kind of meta, like a meta text on her own life. There are so many things in that book that seem like they are funhouse reflections of her own life and her own career look at something like Go Ask Alice, and then you go all the way to the end and you look at like something like Finding Katie. And as you said, she did become more and more brazen. You know, that highlights something else in the story, which is that when you mentioned the uh, idea of her getting away with it versus, you know, the uh, why didn't anybody sort of pull her aside and stop her? We often, you know, we'll read stories now about somebody who puts out a fake memoir or somebody who is caught sort of peddling fiction as fact. And this is not just a single isolated instance. This isn't just one book that came out where suddenly people went, hang on a second, this doesn't, this doesn't seem real. 
this is over more than 40 years. This is four decades of editors and publishers and agents and journalists all kind of just looking the other way. Either people either not noticing or not caring that something was kind of deeply amiss. The sort of example I sometimes give is there was a guy named Mark David Hoffman. He was a, an art forger in actually in Utah County. The long and the short of it is that Mark David Hoffman was an amazingly skilled forger. Some people call him the best forger of the 20th century. And it took a long time for people to be suspicious of the fact that he just kept finding these precious historical documents. He would just sort of say, like, uh, look, it's uh, George Washington's shopping list. And they'd say, where'd you find that? He'd go, like, I was just, I bought this, I got this book at Goodwill, and this happened to be in the back. And they said, that's amazing. I think literally at one point he like found like an early claim to have found an early copy of the Bill of Rights or something. He was like, well, I bought this old book at an antique store. And then there's this handwritten copy of like an early draft of the Bill of Rights. And it's like, if you do that once, people say, well, you're really lucky. If you do that twice, people say, well, that's kind of that's kind of amazing. And then like if you do it more than that, how many Rembrandts can you find in your basement before people start to raise questions about it? If you're being for Sparks, the answer is apparently you can do that for 40 years and it will just kind of go under the radar. It is an amazing thing to look at that and to realize how many things don't add up and didn't add up in the moment, but people kind of turned a blind eye to that. One thing that I uh, appreciate about the book and find just very interesting is how Beatrice and her ways of using people and her insatiable need for fame and attention for her writing you include all that, of course, but it's also just really interesting to me, all the background, because the first part of the book, you do kind of go into her childhood, her backstory, how she became who she is. Was that kind of intentional choice that you wanted to show who Beatrice Sparks was in a way that it balanced out, like, what led her to become so despicable, frankly, in some ways? Like, when I was reading it, it gave me some sympathy but also you don't you hold her to account too it's not like she's off the hook for the lives she's affected was that an intentional balancing act to include the markers of how she became who she is and also hold her accountable and show the way she still manipulated people and that doesn't excuse it i think that almost nobody views themselves as a villain everybody kind of views themselves as doing the right thing even if it only seems that way to them even if it's only within within the context of their own thoughts very few people wake up in the morning and they say, like, today I will, you know, I will inflict more villainy upon an unsuspecting public. People typically view themselves as doing something for the right reasons or for the reasons that make sense to them. And also, nobody is, you know, there's almost nobody who is entirely good or entirely bad. Everybody's somewhere on that spectrum. There are good people who do bad things on occasion. There are bad people who do good things on occasion. To me, that's actually far more interesting. Painting somebody as either they're a saint or an absolute mustache-twirling villain, that's just less interesting because I think we know that just that's not typically the case. To me, at least, it's always more interesting to get a sense of the real person and to get a sense of who they were and at what point did things start to shift and was it a gradual progression? Was it something that sprang from a specific incident? Where did these things come from? And as you said, that certainly doesn't excuse anything, and it certainly doesn't balance out all of the missteps or all of the transgressions that somebody might commit. But it does, to me, it actually makes those things more resonant. Because if you can really show somebody as a real person, if you can give readers a sense of somebody as a real person who really lived and had these experiences, that actually intensifies the things that they do, both good and bad.
sort of like when you watch a movie and there's bad CGI, it's hard to be frightened of or impressed by something that is done with really poor CGI because the whole time your brain is like, well, I'm not scared by this because it doesn't look real. Like, this doesn't look like a real person. This doesn't look like a real monster or a real alien or a real shark or whatever. And so, therefore, it doesn't really have any emotional connection with you. If you're watching a movie and there's a monster or a villain or whatever that looks absolutely real, that gives it all kinds of emotional heft and emotional punch that it wouldn't otherwise. And so... I think there's sometimes a tendency in biography or in telling a true story to reduce people to archetypes. And to me, that just robs them of their, if nothing else, that robs them of their narrative power. Showing them with texture and nuance and layer is not only more interesting, but it actually furthers the narrative impact of all of the things they do, whether those things are righteous or whether those things are villainous. Yeah, ultimately, she is just a three-dimensional character, and so so is everyone in this book, and I think that leaves people with just a lot more thought and really reflecting on this story, because it is such a layered story. My next question is really open-ended, because and it doesn't really have a concrete answer. As I was reading this book, I could not help but keep flashing to modern-day news and parallels to today's world, and it just left me kind of frustrated, because it's like, have people learned anything from this whole satanic panic and stuff? Because like you said, it seems like there never was a big moment, a big moment where like the public turned on Beatrice, people actually realized the fraud or there was never like a big uh, comeuppance moment for her. And this just never really, I mean, there there have always been kind of rumors about the credibility of these diaries, but never just a full, just public exposure of who she really was. Without that, has the public learned from that? I'm reading about like satanic panic era school board meetings being hacked by angry parents and stuff. And that's exactly what's happening today. So it's like, you know, have people learned anything? Like many other people involved in this story, I am not a psychologist. I'm not a sociologist. I have spent a lot, a lot of time thinking and reading about this. Uh, there are people who can speak to this more knowledgeably than I can. I do think you're correct. I think that Jagger said that, you know, there's, there's no present and there's no future. There's just recycled past. I think it was Max Brooks who said that humans are great at not learning lessons. We do find ourselves, so many cases, just repeating the same things again and again, largely because I think some of that is that humans are wired for certain behaviors, and we are creatures of habit, but a lot of that is also, I think, you know, a lot of that is, is a sort of natural selection. I think a lot of that is it's like a strange sort of, not even necessarily a glitch, but it's this unexpected or, or this unforeseen side effect of adaptive evolution. True story. So it's like maybe a few months ago, I knew somebody who walked in the front door and then on the floor by the couch, she sees lurking by the couch, she sees a tarantula. She immediately was like, uh-oh. She kind of takes her camera out, she takes a picture of it from you know, across the room, and she texts a friend, and I came home, and there's like one of those tarantulas got into the house. So it's like this whole text chain starts. All these people talking about what to do with this tarantula that was like sitting on the floor on this woman's couch. She eventually contacts the pest removal service. He comes out, turns out it's not a tarantula. It's literally like a hair scrunchie that had fallen not a tarantula at all. And so the, here's the really fascinating thing about that is a couple of things. One, that you have, I think, at least four different people on this text. And again, this is sort of funny, but it's, I, I probably would have done exactly the same thing. You've got all these people in the text chain looking at a photo of this hair scrunchie. But because she had sort of primed by saying there's this tarantula in my house, they all saw a tarantula, including the person from the test removal company. The second part is that right in that little microcosm, you see something from our evolution. That is, I think is a survival mechanism, 
and this makes all the sense in the world. Humans have 300,000 years of evolution. Only the last couple hundred of those are really what we would recognize as the modern civilization. If you are facing a hostile world, or facing, you're surrounded by nature, if you see or even suspect there, you know, someone is posing a danger to the community, whether that's a person, whether it's a disease, whether it's an animal, it's what looks like a giant spider, your first thing is to back away, and your second thing is to tell everybody you know, you're going to tell the people in your social circles, that's how that sort of thing spread like wildfire. That can, that can very, very quickly go wrong. The satanic panic is a perfect example of something that sort of plays on a lot of evolutionarily, socially inculcated and reinforced tendencies, which is we're afraid that there's danger in the perimeter. First thing we do is ring the alarm. Sometimes that danger is real, sometimes it's not. Just the state of being panicked makes it harder to discern one from the other. There was a study that came out in March of 2021, less than two years ago, from the Public Religious Research Institute, and it said they broke it out by political party, but they also just gave a bottom line finger, which is that 15% of all Americans, 15% believe the United States government and media and financial systems are run by Satan-worshipping pedophiles. That's when you start to realize that things like this never really go away a little bit, and then they kind of get rebooted. At one point in the in the man's gallery, I told the story about a rash of evil clowns that happened in Provo in 1981. Clowns is where the things really start to overlap. The clowns, people thought the clowns were handing out LSD-lazy stamps, that all of these threads of, of paranoia coming together. So that's in 1981. Fast forward 35 years, 2016, I think, where there was a rash of clown sightings all up and down the East Coast, a lot of them were in South Carolina. I don't know what it was about 2016, why it was in South Carolina, but it seems like we're sometimes the best at spotting patterns where they're not helpful. You can look at a bunch of unrelated events, draw a completely false conclusion about how they're related, but we are sometimes terrible at spotting we ourselves falling into the same right, the same pattern, the same destructive paranoia. Yeah, that summarizes a lot about how all these different variables just sort of combine to make this story what it was. We are running really low on time now, so I'm just going to ask my final question, which is just, is there anything else, any facet of the story, any anecdote or something that you want to share that you haven't yet? What's your big main final message about this book? I feel like maybe making a lot of this sound theoretical, intellectual, and philosophical, and those certainly those elements are there, but more than anything, there really just is an astonishing story. If somebody is a child of the 70s or the 90s, or if you are fascinated by hoaxes or the satanic panic, how real-life events where people slowly turn into myths, you know, most legends and myths have their roots, however tangential, in some real event or some real person. To me, one of the things that fascinates me is that moment where a thing isn't totally a myth, but it's also not, it's not being represented completely accurately. It's where real life has slowly started to turn into a legend. Can see gradation of where something that really happens slowly becomes this cultural story. You know, more than anything, it really is just a blind blind story. Yeah, I highly recommend it for all the reasons you said, because it really is a very interesting microcosm of so many different stories that all kind of combine to tell this one main story about this really fascinating woman and the, the story she told. It's one of those books where you kind of just have to trust that you're along for the ride and see where it goes. It's very full of twists. It's rooted in truth about fiction. It's I really enjoyed reading it, so I highly recommend it. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me more about it. And thank you so much. This was really interesting. Great. Thank you so much. I really much appreciate it. Thank you.
I do apologize for the connection getting all staticky and weird partway through. A transcript will be out soon at howtostand.substack.com. For the sake of clarity, I hope it was still pretty easy to understand. It may be just a little fun and creepy because we're talking about the satanic panic and then it feels like a demonic force hacked our phone line or something. Thanks for your patience when the connection got a bit disjointed there partway during the interview. Still hope it was enjoyable to listen to. Talk to you all again soon. Bye, everybody.